This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is the chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary, an exceptional writer and speaker, and a recognized authority on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and the New Testament. Uh, Dr. Scott McKnight, thank you for joining the conversation. Andy, good to be with you. Now, I'm sitting in my office in Baton Rouge, and I'm staring down copies of your commentary on James and Philemon and Sermon on the Mount, along with the Jesus Creed, a, a fellowship of different, and a blue parakeet. Yet, There's been a question I've been dying to ask you for years. Uh, when you were attending the University of Nottingham, did you ever go off and have adventures in Sherwood Forest? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> it's in a it's in a village. I think it's north of Nottingham in a village called Edwinstow. And we were there twice, I believe. I think one time Chris and I took the two kids up there and another time we uh we took one of the family members. So maybe we went twice, maybe more than that. I think just a couple of times. And when I was there, okay, I'm doing gospel studies at the University of Nottingham. I worked my dissertation on Matthew chapter 10. And this puts you in contact with all the people in the historical Jesus and how you get back to Jesus through the gospel records and sometimes all the nonsense that goes with it. But, uh, it's, you know, at times pretty serious methods. I saw a book in the bookstore in the Sherwood Forest, which could have been titled uh, The Quest for the Historical Robin Hood. So Chris bought me this book by J.C. Holt on Robin Hood for Christmas, and I studied it very carefully, read it you know, paragraph by paragraph, densely paying attention to method, and I was amazed that in some ways, in, in many ways, the method that J.C. Holt, who is a medievalist at Cambridge, I believe, uh, was using to, to get back behind all the records of Robin Hood and the stories and the legends and the movies and everything, 
were the, the methods were very similar to the methods used by many in gospel studies. So yes, I've been to the Sherwood Forest. While just after we left, someone tried to burn down that. The, uh, there was a great big oak tree called the Major Oak, and I think it was severely damaged. So mm. that's that's my story about. How's that for an answer? <laughs> that's that's great. Well, you know, how does somebody who you know went to school in Michigan and Illinois uh, end up in United Kingdom to get your your PhD? Well, my um, my professors at uh, Trinity were um, several of them got their PhDs in England. But while I was uh, a senior a senior in uh, college, I got a book uh, published by the ETS on uh, just a collection, I think, of 25 years. And I started paying attention uh, to the uh, list of contributors to that volume which is many, many authors, famous New Testament evangelicals. I paid attention to where they did their PhDs. And so I developed while I was in college and then especially in my seminary days, a desire to do my PhD in Europe, in England, because some of my favorite New Testament scholars had done their work in England. And then uh, the advice I got from my professors at Trinity was to find a professor that I wanted to study with rather than just pick a school. And I isolated three or four schools. I applied for a scholarship with the Rotary Foundation. They gave it to me and I had to list five schools and then they got to choose where I went for my PhD. So they chose Nottingham as a good place for me to go and at Nottingham, um, I studied with James D.G. Dunn, and it was a great experience. Jimmy Dunn was a great supervisor for Ph.D. work. Well, you've been at this higher education thing for, for quite a while now. Um, it's rapidly changing. Um, where, do you, where do you see theological education heading in the next decade or so? Well, Andy, this is a difficult one. Um, there's some there's some major changes. The cost of seminary has gotten significant enough that there are very few students who can go to seminary full time. And most of those have a spouse who is making a lot of money. Just just think of moving to a normal seminary. And let's say you have seminaries in Boston, you have one in you have in Dallas, you have Pasadena, California, you have Chicago. Um, I'm, not, I'm not ignoring any seminaries here. Uh, so if there's some that I haven't mentioned, that's okay. It's not the point. If you have to move to this area and live, it's going to cost you quite a bit of money for rent, quite a bit of money to buy food. And there was a day when you could go to seminary and work at UPS part-time and go to seminary full-time and support a family. I did that. Today, uh, tuition and housing, room and board, whatever you want to call it, are high enough that it, you have to make quite a bit of money, 30000 40000 minimum, uh, to survive and probably to start paying off school debts 
you're going to have to make significantly more than that. So this has been a major change. More and more students are going to seminary part-time. A three-year full-time MDiv degree part-time is probably six to 10 years. And that, that brings many life changes in the process. Furthermore, many of the students that are applying to seminary are already in ministry and doing well, and they want to improve as ministers rather than, in the old days, get prepared to become a minister. They're already ministering, and they need skills and tools and knowledge, et cetera. So this has really changed what seminary education is about, and Northern Seminary now has adjusted to this, and we have an absolutely marvelous uh, program called Northern Live, where students do not have to move don't have to change locations. They can go part-time. They can stay in some degrees entirely. Our MDiv degree, you can stay wherever you are. Um, you can be in Baton Rouge and turn on your computer every Monday or Tuesday or whenever the class is meeting and join the classroom. And you will feel like you're in the classroom because everybody can see everybody. And uh, the professor sees the students on a large screen the students see the students on another large screen. So there's a screen in the front and the back. And other students, my cohorts in the, both the DMIN program and the Master of Arts cohort in New Testament, they come in for a week-long intensive, the masters do, and the DMIN students do two week-long intensives. And they come to school, and we meet with a week. We have lunch with one another every day. Uh, it's it's a long day, and um, that's all the schooling. The, the master students then join uh, the computer throughout throughout the rest of the year. So those are those are to me the big adjustments. The other side is, and this is this is a criticism. I waited to say this is there are, there are an increasing number of models of pastors influenced deeply by people like Bill Hybels who did not go to seminary and in many ways have adapted pragmatic tools, business methods, leadership skills to run churches without a deep theological education. So there are an increasing number of pastors following in that model who need seminary education and they're not getting it. So I believe that's another trend is that we need more students, not because we all, all the seminaries want them, it's because these pastors need that education. Hmm. Well, minus some of the technological avenues you've mentioned, how are, how are seminarians being trained differently today than maybe five years ago? Okay. I think that word trained is an interesting word for seminary. Um, seminary education is primarily an education, not a training in ministry. It gives what we would often say tools and skills in that sense. Uh, we can help students learn the New Testament. That's what I teach. Um, we can help students learn the Old Testament, theology, church history. So that's, that's education. That's primarily information and absorbing it and embracing it and thinking about it and expanding one's knowledge of what goes on in the church. Then there are practical ministry things like preaching and pastoring and visiting 
and evangelizing and leading worship, etc. All these things are increasingly being recognized, best taught in the context of ministry in churches. Andy, this is what I've discovered. My students increasingly are already gifted as pastors and leaders. Of course, they can get better. They're younger. Most of them are younger, say 30s and 40s, and they have some growing to do. But they already have these skills. And, and if we were to have a course on, uh, let's say, uh, how to conduct um, the Lord's Supper in your church, these are students who've done it 250 times. So they don't, they don't need some of that training that classically was taught in seminaries by pastoral theology department professors. They've done all these things, and they are more in quest for New Testament, Old Testament, history, background, church history, systematic theology, etc. They're questing for the knowledge base, not so much training base. Now, that's not to say we don't have students who need that, because we do. But increasingly, um, these things are recognized by pastors in a mentoring relationship with students rather than by professors in a seminary. Now, reverse motion is a popular filming effect, both for professionals and iPhone users, but I didn't know that I needed it for reading the Bible. Um, in July, you released an, a new book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. In the book, you argue that looking at Paul's epistle to the Romans has largely been misinterpreted as a esoteric theological discourse. Instead, you see it as Paul's pastoral concern for Roman Christians to live in a new way of life. Um, you wrote, to read Romans well, all Romans must be read in light of the context of Romans 14 through 15. Once you let the context shape one's reading of Romans, some of the interpretive problems are resolved and new nuances are achieved in that reading. Walk us through the process of uncovering this reversed reading of Paul's classic work. Okay, Andy, I missed some of those opening allusions you made to, to uh, maybe movies or something. I didn't catch all that. But um, I, I, um, I, would say, I would like to suggest that our reading of Romans has been narrower than it should be and less pastoral than it could be. Uh, a lot of the interpretations of Romans are just so well done, so much exegesis. History, theology has been uh, poured into and, and extrapolated from Romans that we're pretty alert to many of the theological themes. But what amazed me as I read Romans is how, 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 many, how few of, of readers even know what's going on in Romans 12 to 16 and especially 14 to 15 when they read it. And this is what I mean. Romans is a hard book to read. Almost everybody admits it. I talk to pastors all over the world who tell me they would never preach Romans any more than just a single passage because it scares them because of the theological complexities and the academic debates about Romans today and Paul's theology. So I, I've, I've met that. 
those who do realize Romans 1 through 8 is hard. This is the core, often understood to be the core theological argument of the book of Romans. Romans 9 through 11, which gets into election and Israel's story and uh, hardening and all this, has become uh, or has been a, uh, a very difficult uh, set of verses for pastors for many, many years, and many are just simply bothered by it. And that's three chapters, and that's hard. And as a result, pastors who decide to preach or teach in a Sunday school class or a small group through Romans wonder how long it's going to take. I know some stories of pastors who preached Romans on Sunday morning for 10 years all the way up to 20 years. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones preached Romans for 17 or 18 years, and I believe it was on an evening service. And um, I don't know how many people came, but I'm sure quite a few people came to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones. So Romans is hard, and it takes a long time to work through passages. The idea of doing Romans even one chapter at a time is intimidating to pastors. Now, here's the problem I found. I was teaching the Gospels for many years, 30 years, where my focus was the Gospels. When I taught at Trinity, I taught Gospels. I did not teach Paul. When I taught at North Park for 17 years, I did not teach Paul because I had a colleague who that was kind of his pet course that he loved to teach. I didn't teach Paul, so instead, whenever I went to church, I mean, I should say I went to church every Sunday, almost every Sunday. Uh, when we got to church, I would sit down in the pew. I would open up my Greek New Testament, and I would, re I would be reading Romans all the time because I always thought Romans was the most significant letter Paul wrote. I would read Romans, and uh, I would get to Romans 12 through 16, and I would think, if we paid more attention to Romans 12 through 16, we would see different things in Romans 1 through 8 and 1 through 11. So I started reading Romans. Uh, I would start again, start all over again, and start with Romans 1. I would be thinking about Romans 12 through 16, but especially 14 to 15, and constantly be asking myself, how would the weak, who are talked about in Romans 14 to 15, and I think they're probably almost certainly um, Jewish believers, I would ask, how would the weak hear this passage? And I would ask, how would the strong, who I think are Gentile believers and people of high social status, or at least more social status, how would they hear this passage? And as I did this over and over, I became convinced there were a lot of things to say about Romans 1 through 11 that were not being said. And if they were, they were barely being said. And uh, so I began to teach that when we read Romans, we have to read it backwards. And uh, I was asked to write a chapter, or I was involved in a book, where I wrote a chapter on reading Romans, and I showed it to a friend of mine who was the editor at Baylor University Press, Kerry Newman. And he said, Scott, I'll give you a contract right now for a book if you'll write that book. So I sat down uh, almost immediately and began writing, reading Romans backwards. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. 
for 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. It's not a bad offer. Write a paper and end up with a book. Uh, let's yeah. uh, <laughs> let's zero in on Romans twelve. Uh, Romans twelve nine through twenty one is is the most challenging portion of Paul's letter. Um, I think he he argues for love that is expressed through honor and joy and hospitality and blessing above curses, humility above selfishness, goodness over evil, peace instead of revenge, uh, never being lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor uh, serving the Lord. Paul said. Um, you could make the argument that, that Paul's 1 Corinthians love passage seems so poetic and maybe even possibly obtainable compared to this meaty and vivid contextual call to love in Romans 12. So take us a little deeper in, into what's going on here in this passage. Okay, Paul starts out Romans 12. This is where Paul transitions to uh, what we would often say, now he's going to get into the practical stuff. I call this section lived theology, and I believe, I like to say it this way, Andy, this at least gets people to listen to me. Paul knew Romans 12 through 16, and he wrote a theology that would prop up what he wanted people to, to do in 12 through 16. So it's not like, oh, now how should we live out Romans 1 through 11? I believe from the very beginning, this was the aim of Paul. And he starts in chapter 12 with that amazing passage about sacrifice and giving yourself for the sake of other people and not being transformed by the world, which erupts into a section on spiritual gifts, which is interesting. And the whole focus of the spiritual gifts is a life for the sake of others. Then he gets to verses 9 through 21, which is a string um, and in, I'm, Andy, I'm translating the New Testament right now for InterVarsity, called the Second Testament. And these are often translated as uh, imperatives or commands or prohibitions, but there's um, most of them are participles uh, that are kind of gaining strength by being surrounded or punctuated by imperatives. And it's just a long string of things that these people are to do that can be summarized, and I think you're right, as uh, living a life of love. I call this kind of life Christoformity. That means being conformed to the image of Christ, as Paul teaches, is the goal of God's work, redemptive work in our lives in Romans chapter 8, in, the, in that glorious passage, that we will be conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, that it's so in other words, this is what Christoformity looks like. We love people. Uh, we we hold fast to what is good. We contribute to the needs of the saints. Uh, that's about charity and using our resources for the sake of others. We show hospitality to strangers. 
Uh, all these sorts of things are what Paul expects of the Roman Christians if they are going to live in light of the revelation of God in Christ and the kind of theology that he has discussed in chapters 1 through 11. So uh, I, would, I would say that the climax, this is an odd one for many people, the climax of Romans uh, 12, 9 through 21 uh, can be found in Romans 14, 1. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. And he says in Romans 15 uh, that we ought to put up with the failings of the weak. I believe for Paul, the aim of the book of Romans is to get Jewish believers and Gentile believers to sit at a table with one another and enjoy one another and fellowship with one another and to quit fighting with one another. The theology of Romans is a theology designed to bring peace in the churches of God, the house churches of God, meeting in the city of Rome, right in the middle of the empire. And it is, it is not designed so that we'll know more and we can write three-volume systematic theologies. It is designed so that you and I can live a theology of peace and embody peace in the way we live with one another. So unity and peace are critical themes in the whole book of Romans of why the letter was written. What's fascinating about, about Romans and this portion that you've, you've focused in on is Romans 13 has classically been used as a justification for white evangelicals to have a, a blind allegiance to the United States, um, namely the Republican Party. So let's talk a little bit about political allegiance and idolatry. Um, you wrote, when a white Republican repeats these words in the United States, an African, Asian, a Latin American can hear oppression. One person's subjection is another person's oppression. One woman's pragmatics is another's silencing. One person's strategy for mission is another person's impossible impossibility in life. Uh, take us a little deeper there. Well, I like I like what I said there. I'm glad you <laughs> quoted that. I'm glad I wrote those those words. All right, Romans 13 is understood by many as sort of a blanket endorsement of the Apostle Paul of political authority, which is not very consistent with the Old Testament, with Judaism especially, with Jesus, who made very strong words about the political leaders in Galilee and in Judea, or with how the early Christians lived. Even in Jerusalem, the apostles didn't live this way. So when Paul tells them to be subject to the leaders, we have to be on our guard to say, uh, ask the question always, uh, and why? There is a pragmatic reality here. You know, it would be foolish for a group of maybe 100. Uh, most people would say, it's not more than 150 Christians in the city of Rome at this time to think that they could do something about Rome. Uh, so why would Paul tell 
the readers of this letter to be subject to the authorities. Okay. I think the primary, I, this, one is a, this one is quite debated, but uh, my conclusion, because I read Romans backwards and I'm always concerned with asking, how would the weak and how would the strong have heard this? I don't think the strong of Rome, the Gentile believers who knew the city of Rome, ever would have thought of rebelling against the emperor. That was absolute madness. But I do believe that Jewish believers who grew up in the world of Maccabean stories and the heroic stories of release from Egypt, the battles of the Old Testament, um, who knew that uh, sticking their neck out for the sake of obedience to the Torah was the way of heroic faithfulness and obedience in Israel, I believe it's likely that the Jewish believers, there was a contingent who were thinking the madness of we're going to be observant, we're going to resist the empire when it tries to invade our, our circles of observance. Remember, not too long ago, um, they, would be, they would know they had been kicked out of Rome by Claudius. And now they're back. And this time, under Nero, they're not going to let happen what happened before. So I think that Paul is addressing Jewish believers with a heroic resistance, even rebellious mindset. And he says, no, that's not the way it's going to operate. As Christians, we are not going to appeal to the holy war tradition. We're not going to appeal to resistance and rebellion and revolution. We are going to be good Christians. I want you to understand that God is in control, and uh, you be obedient, and um, we're not going to be rebellious. So I don't think this is in any way, shape, or form an endorsement of all political authority. I think it is a rhetorical strategy to calm some hotheads down in the early church. Um, and there is also insinuations in this text that um, that uh, even Caesar has to answer to God, that God, that Jesus is Lord, etc. Going to be snuffed out. So I would say that that um, Paul's fundamental strategy is that we we pay. Paul says this. This is amazing. All right. He says, pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. These are typical Roman attitudes. But in verse 8, he says, owe no one anything. This is almost an unfolding of what he just said or a sabotaging and subverting of what he said. Owe no one anything. In other words, what I just told you to pay taxes, don't pay anybody anything except, first of all, to love one another. So Paul sees taxes, honor, respect in the Roman Empire as instances of loving the other. So let's start there. Our political posturing ought to start with loving one another loving our leaders, 
which would mean praying for them, seeking what is right. So to love in our environment, because we are a politically empowered people and we have a nation that is more or less tolerant of Christianity and sometimes even is very similar in what it advocates, justice, peace, etc. So I think that in our government situations, we have the opportunity to be active for what we think is right and good. I think we should do this in a way that is honoring to God, that it is absent of political partisanship, that clearly reflects the gospel and the way of Jesus rather than a political party. We have the opportunity to do that without it being seen as rebellious, but as seen as a good thing. So I believe that we have the opportunity to do things that Paul would never have dreamt of. He did not wake up in the morning and think, how can I influence Nero's group of people in the direction of loving our neighbors as ourselves? He woke up in, well, he's not in Rome, but when he was in Rome, he was in prison. When he, when he woke up in the morning, he wondered if that was going to be his last day. So I believe that we have the opportunity as Christians in the United States to be good Americans by advocating for what is good. I think we should do so peacefully, lovingly, respectfully, tolerantly. We should not make enemies of people who disagree with us. We should advocate for what is good, and we should be marked by goodness. It should be noted that um, the week that you and I are having this conversation, um, 31 people were killed and dozens injured in two mass shootings, one in El Paso, Texas, and the other in Dayton, Ohio. And the motivation, um, at least for the El Paso shooting, boils down to white supremacy and xenophobic rhetoric in America. And experts have said that by 2045, white people will be the minority in America. And for some, this is a nerving fact, which they are fighting through those they elect into office. And you spoke a good bit about privilege in this book. You wrote, Romans is about privilege and power. Paul's gospel deconstructs power and privilege. Paul lived theology, turns power upside down, and denies privilege. Take us a little deeper there and into what you're uh, talking about and, and how you see that taking shape among American Christians. Um, okay. This is, I mean, this is a complex topic, and I'm not, I'm not a political thinker, and I don't get up in the morning wondering what Donald Trump is doing or what any other president is doing. It doesn't matter to me who the president is. Uh, my responsibility is to be faithful to Jesus. All right, I believe that this is the way I would frame it. White evangelicals, white Americans, white Protestants, white mainliners have been in a position of privilege for the history of the United States. In the last 50 years, especially since the era of Ronald Reagan, so let's just say uh, for almost 40 years, uh, is that right, 20? Uh, yeah, almost 40 years. Um, there has been a growing divide between what rural Americans call elites and city folks 
And what city folks, unfortunately, will refer at times to deplorables and hillbillies. And as a result, we now have a massive divide between what is called the red counties and the blue counties. I live in the Chicagoland area, which is a, a blue area in the maps. Um, there are more Republicans in, the, in some of the cities that, you know, like the suburbs. And, but I have family members and I have deep sensitivity toward rural America, which is increasingly alienated. And Carol Swain, who was a professor at Nashville many years ago with Princeton University Press, wrote a book warning uh, the, let's say, the, the university professors, the city folks of a growing white nationalism, and she was right. She was right that this is uh, popping up. And uh, J.D. Vance in his book, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, also described the uh, rural uh, American. So I believe that we have in, the, in America a really very serious problem. And I believe that the solution is not to say, well, the city people are right and the rural people are wrong and they need to get with it or they don't deserve to be American. And it is not the solution to have the rural people say, uh, the city folks, the blue folks, they don't deserve to be a part of America. That's what's happening with white nationalism. I believe we are called by the church right now to work hard at crossing the line between the counties in America, between the blue counties and the red counties, and demonstrate to the United States that rural Americans and city Americans who are believers in Jesus can find a unity that transcends their political differences and their social statuses, that we can dwell together, as Paul says, without arguing, to welcome one another, that there is a unity in Christ that is greater than a unity by political party. So, um, Andy, I'm an equal opportunity critic. I want to know why white nationalists are angry, and I want to know why the anti-Trumpers are so angry. You can pick up Facebook, you can pick up your Twitter feed, and you can see people angry from both sides. The church's responsibility is to enter into that anger and to diffuse it by offering a gospel of peace and unity that transcends our political angers. In your rereading of Romans Backwards, what seems to be the most challenging message for American Christians today? The most challenging message, uh, I think, is the simplest of all messages, and that is to discern our neighbors and to cross boundary lines and to love one another by sitting at table with one another. The biggest challenge facing the church in the United States right now, privilege, privilege from both people, both sides. People think they're privileged. 
I think the strong thought they were privileged, and I think the weak thought they were privileged. So it's almost a map on American uh, culture. I believe it is our responsibility not to condemn the other side, but to sit with the other side at table as brothers and sisters in Christ, to welcome them to the table and to learn from one another and to grow into a unity that tells the American culture that there's a better way than warfare with one another. For those that want to stay connected with Scott, you can follow him on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, go out and purchase Reading Paul Backwards wherever books are sold. Scott, thank you for reminding us of our calling to be a blessing, uh, to have empathy, to be peacemakers, and more importantly, to love. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.